you know, the last uh, episode we recorded on Palestine was probably the farthest away from anything we usually talk about because it was solely about, you know, this one Palestinian student's experience and just hearing about the whole crisis from firsthand. And now we're tying it back to environmental and animal issues here. The West has always turned a blind eye to environmentalism. We had a Western awakening to conservation after the works of John Muir, which inspired the Sierra Club, and Rachel Carson, the the author of The Silent Spring, who awoke a generation of people and started a widespread movement in the West towards environmental activism. Environmentalism, however, this idea that we can return to nature, is not an idea of our own. The Western philosophy of environmentalism co-ops the ideas of indigenous peoples and claims it as our own. This kind of environmentalism gave rise to the concept of greenwashing, which is typically used in marketing of green, quote unquote, green products to appeal to the environmentalists while masking the true damage of products that are being marketed. This episode is a continuation of our series on Palestine. And today we'll be speaking to a scholar on Israeli greenwashing and how it has been used to continue the oppression and occupation of Palestinian lands and people. Welcome back to Behind the Tofu, a vegan podcast that brings you Behind the Tofu. Exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. I'm Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. I'm Seth. I'm Jesse. Just, if, you'll find me eventually. Uh, Seth has been, uh, just for our listeners who have not been caught up on this yet, Seth has been suspended. No, uh, no don't so worry about it. Don't worry about it. He's no longer on Bolts and Bombers, <laughs> even though every episode up to this says that he's <laughs> Bolts and Bombers. That account does not exist anymore. <laughs> I was too mean to someone. Oh no! Uh, you can find us on uh, you can find us on Twitter <laughs> at behind the tofu. You can find us on Instagram at behind the tofu podcast, and you can find our website at behind the tofu um, Today we have a guest, Jesse. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. So my name is Jesse Taylor Cruz, and I'm a philosophy grad student based in New York on um, the unceded lands of the Lenape people. And I study philosophy, but at the intersection of discard studies, genocide studies, and the political ecology of waste. All trash, all the time. So my first question, you know, was to ask you about your study. Um, But really, what got you into studying this subject? And I think it's a really fascinating one. And I think the idea of intersection of politics and environmentalism is something that we're going to have to be aware of much more in the coming years as the climate crisis you know, escalates. And so, you know, I'm just curious, what was there any particular, you know, uh, event or series of events that made you realize that this is what you want to focus on? Oof, so that's a really good question. And so kind of, I guess I'll start with like a little background to how I got to doing this work. So at first I was focusing on pretty much just mass incarceration generally, but particularly pregnant people that are in police custody, whether they're arrested or in jails, prisons, detention centers. And so for a while I was just working as a doula with um, people who are pregnant but incarcerated or people that are formerly incarcerated. And from there I just started digging more into just the histories of jails and prisons, but specifically with respect to like the built environment and itself. Um, so like their actual construction, where, uh, who was deciding where they were sited, stuff like that. And it was looking into the history of Rikers Island in New York and finding out that it was, the land itself was about 40% landfill, where I was like, wow, this is, this is really interesting. Um, and from there, it kind of just, I shifted gears and I was already interested in like local waste management stuff, just this kind of like a I don't want to say it's like a hobby, but I was always kind of into it. But learning that was when I just really dove in. And then from there, I started doing work and local waste management stuff. My research changed. And then I just started kind of looking at all of my research from this perspective of the political ecology of waste. So um, how would you yourself, as somebody who studies waste all the time, how would you define greenwashing to someone who may not be familiar? I would define greenwashing as like a deflective remove, uh, maneuver in policy and like outward appearance of a, a state or an entity or a municipality where they'll make it seem as if 
everything going on within their jurisdiction is striving towards, you know, environmental justice and, and climate justice and zero waste, when in reality, there are actually uh, extreme cases of environmental degradation or waste colonialism, high levels of pollution, et cetera, that are being hidden within these narratives on purpose. So a follow-up question I have about that, you know, sort of distinction is, what would you say are good ways to um, distinguish distinguish from when, you know, an entity is talking about environmental justice and, you know, zero waste and to, you know, figure out whether they're being serious about it or not? Because those are important things that we do need to address. And, you know, it would be pretty bad, obviously, if they're claiming to be working towards that, but not actually doing it. Yeah, I mean, one quick way, I guess, to really look into it, this is kind of my go-to is, I'll go to their website to their, whether they're sanitation or trash, whatever waste related websites, and actually look at their waste characterization studies, see what types of policies and laws are being enacted and proposed, and look for specifically testimonies and narratives from marginalized and chronically disenfranchised peoples in those regions to see what are their actual, what do they have to say about this? Not just, you know, for the people in power that are kind of sharing these great narratives, but what's actually happening to the people that are most negatively impacted by the effects of, of climate change. So to get into the main subject we want to address, um, as was described in, in many journals, as you've showed to me, um, and in recently in the new project and website decolonizepalestine.com, which we will link in our sources page, um, which they have an extensive article on the greenwashing of Palestine, and they separate it into um, you know two sections where the the origins of the colonization of Palestine and modern greenwashing. And so the first question I have is how would you describe greenwashing and how they used you know this fake guise of environmentalism to uh, to justify uh, the early stages of colonization. Yeah, so the first thing that comes to mind is just one thing that's really important to, to kind of center here is so many of the journal articles, essays, et cetera, they make it seem as if the changes that need to be made in Palestine, you know, are things that are actually plausible, as if the people that live there actually have control over infrastructure, they are legally allowed to do certain actions. So the first thing I'd say is just one big issue is that Israeli forces will look at the environmental damage, the pollution, the rubble, the deteriorating landfills, the uh, damaged wastewater infrastructure, for instance, and they'll see that, oh, well, this is proof that they cannot govern themselves. They cannot imagine their, uh, manage their own issues. And so it is up to us to, you know, kind of show up and save the day, take control and make things happen. When in reality, they're the direct cause of the degradation and damage. And it's this weird kind of feedback loop of the more damage they do, and the more laws and policies that are put in place to prevent Palestinians from actually taking control, um, while at the same time, kind of expecting Palestinians to be able to make these grand changes when they just literally cannot. <laughs> yeah. I think that this ties back to something that, that I really highlighted in this article that Seth was talking about on decolonized Palestine, where when they began the occupation of Palestine, like there was a lot of scholarship basically saying that Palestine was this arid, horrible place and that, you know, it was going, they were going to make it better. Um, and here's a quote that from that article that really like stuck with me as something that I think was just awful. Um, Palestine was a poor and backward agricultural country. This is of course still the case to a large extent, but a remarkable development has taken place, which is gradually modifying the traditional life. And it paints changing, like, right, like making, I guess, industry, industry coming in um, as a positive thing, a positive change that it's improving the lives of Palestinians when really, as you were saying, Jesse, like these things that they're bringing in to the region are actually what is causing the degradation of the environment. It sounds a lot like white savior, saviorism to me. Um, is that an accurate, you know, uh, description of that quote and sort of, you know, the situation? 
in a way, I'm just kind of wary of, um, I don't know, we this not the whole conversation for another day, but just bringing in uh, whiteness in general kind of complicates it in a way that would be a whole other conversation to get into. But generally speaking, yeah, and I, I agree it is something like that. Or, or at least saviorism to an extent. I mean, I think that would be maybe more accurate. Um, but yeah, so what do you think about that quote and how, you know, you know, basically they went in and then they were like, oh, you know, we can sort of just tell all the other Zionists um, whatever we feel like, you know, would justify, you know, colonizing and settling, uh, whether or not it's true or not. So yeah, um, what stood out from that the most to me was just, well, sorry, I just lost my train of thought completely. Oh, okay. So the bringing industry in, bringing in the products, bringing in the actual materials um, and tying that back to this issue of truth. So one thing that just is the worst part of that is when we're talking about bringing industry in, bringing in these products, bringing in these materials, it's almost assumed that they're just going to be managed and handled and disposed of properly. And so just really getting really real about that. It's like when these things are coming in, they have to have you know a final resting place. And if you just look at the data, chances are it's just going to end up in an illegal dumping site or a landfill that isn't actually being properly taken care of. And so it's not just that it's coming in, it's that it doesn't have any place to go after the fact. And if it does go somewhere, it's just further exacerbating existing problems. And so to kind of paint this picture of, oh, hey, uh, you know, we're making sure that industry is booming in this region, but um, secret, uh, we're actually not making sure that there's infrastructure set up in place to make sure that it can actually be taken care of properly. And so it's on, on its face, you know, it may seem, I guess, quote unquote progressive, but it, it's just not when you actually take away all the, the frills. Yeah. And that, and the article said more about that as well. It's exactly what you're saying, Jesse, where they came in and uh, said that it was going to improve and that they were going to make these changes, these, these really good changes. But the article even pointed out that the machinery and all the changes that they were making for specifically agricultural products actually were more defective and did not work as well as the original um, Palestinian agricultural practices. Um so, I, I mean, it's interesting that even this is like this scholarship came out, came out like in the 60s. Some of it did. Some of the stuff that they're pointing out. And they've known it now for years, like forever. I guess it's 60 years now that the, the agricultural practices or the in general, like environmental practices that are being brought in by Zionists are worse than the Palestinian practices, but they continue to move forward with them. Yeah, you can honestly draw a lot of parallels to, you know, practices that happen in the U.S. settler state as well, where they'll they'll literally have explicitly transparent, detailed reports from, you know, the 60s, like decades and decades ago about, for instance, landfills and um, the negative impacts of like burning trash and stuff. And all of a sudden, now it's the late, not late 20s, but whatever year this is right now. And now all of a sudden there's more reports like, oh, this is harming certain communities. This is doing this, that, and the other. When in reality, it's like, this, it's just, it's not, it's not news and it's been happening. And the main reason is that there are just certain communities and certain people that are just deemed, you know, worthy of having to deal with this and it's just taken a long time for this to kind of reach the public eye because they were so good at hiding this really insidious disgusting violent these practices it's yeah so let's get into um you know the modern aspects of environmentalism and greenwashing of today because you know that can be more relatable to people that are seeing things in the news and such and so I would even describe what's going on today as ecological terrorism uh do you think that's an accurate way of describing you know how Israel's acting towards the Palestinians yeah I, th I think that would be a good way to describe it um one reason why I 
I have like work in genocide studies heavily informing a lot of my work in um, environmental justice and such is because when it really comes down to it, it's a lot of the practices are genocidal, like to the core. And um, absolutely. Yeah. And I think being really honest about that, like we're, I mean, we're talking about people's livelihoods. We're talking about entire generations of people being systematically wiped out. We're talking about, I mean, if you're literally bombing and polluting people's farms and lands and such, preventing them from being able to take care of themselves in terms of food and taking away their water. Like, when you know talk about, we're oh, talking about, so we're talking about, you know, these generations being wiped out. We have to look at the, you know, um, the famous quote from Ben-Gurion where he says, the old will die and the young will forget, uh, which is, you know, demonstrably false because as you can see generations later, Palestinians have not forgotten, you know, the history of their people uh, and they've managed to, you know, continue the movement to today. And continue what you're saying, apologize. Yeah, no, I mean, you brought up a really important point though, this whole idea of this, of the forgetting gets really frustrating just because, I mean, another parallel to the United States, there's a lot of you know, indigenous knowledges and oral histories from, you know, descendants of enslaved people here where it's not just that people are forgetting, it's that the knowledge itself is purposely being wiped out. People in positions of power are purposely making it so that it's difficult to actually make sure that these different types of memory are able to be passed down, whether it's the burning of physical places like libraries, archives, et cetera, or it's preventing people from being able to have the resources they need to be able to carry these traditions through. And you see that happening in Palestine where, you know, it's difficult to, to share your story or pass down certain you know, artifacts and such when it's literally just being destroyed in front of you. And when you're too busy worrying about whether or not you're going to be able to find a safe place to hide from airstrikes to be able to pass these stories along. Like it's so, yeah, it's visceral stuff like that that I just can't get out of my mind. And it's, it's like manufacturing amnesia or something on the part of um, people in positions of power. And I think the worst part about it all is that I think, you know, if, you, if you're comparing Israel to the U.S., I mean, I would say that the U.S. is a lot more, um, you know, uh, I don't know how to, how to describe it. Um, they, they do a better job of covering, you know, up how we've acted towards the native people of our land. But the Israeli leaders, they're a lot more, co they're, they're a lot more open about, you know, oh, you know, we should burn them all and, you know, oh, you know, it's going to be an entirely Jewish state and it's going to be all for us kind of thing. I'm, I can find lots more quotes, but, you know, anyone who's relatively familiar with this knows the way that the leaders, you know, they compare Palestinians to monkeys and they talk about them as, as if they don't deserve human rights and et cetera. Wait, um, but so Seth, I, I do want to point out that I think the reason why the United States has become more covert rather than overt about their wanting to... Um, commit genocide against our indigenous peoples is because we're in a different stage of the colonial state than Palestine is. Palestine is in, still in the early stages of the colonial state. And so the overt hatred towards indigenous people is exactly where we were at that stage. I mean, we're talking about yeah. the trail of tears. We're talking about actual harmful genocide of indigenous people, forcing them off of their lands. Like, putting them in abject poverty, putting them in yeah, the residential school, the residential schools, like, you know, trying to get them to be like the rest of them. Like that's exactly what they're doing at that point. Right. Over there in Palestine. So we're in just in a different stage of colonialism where now it's be had to become more covert oppression of indigenous people because we have a more awareness about what's happening. We've had that cultural change over time. Palestine hasn't gotten there yet. And so, ironically enough, we are recording this on July 4th, um, you know, the day because that- Because none of us are fucking celebrating this horrible fucking holiday. <laughs> so it's ironic because we're talking about, you know, the genocide of indigenous people. And so, you know, while yes, there are people, unfortunately, that are celebrating this day of independence, um, you know, one quote that I, uh, not really quote, but one uh, 
fact that I learned today was that part of you know the independence movement for America was actually to preserve slavery. That I didn't really realize that uh, around that time, abolition of slavery was uh, spreading in Europe, and they were worried that would spread here to the colonies. And so they revolted and wanted to keep the slaves. And you know, it took. I mean, it took in until you know. Um, uh, Lincoln and the Civil War to abolish it and such, but you know we still really have slavery. Anyways, that's beside the point. But... <laughs> I was about to say we still have prisons and we still have yeah, I'm, I'm... <laughs> an awful, an awful judicial system that forces black people into slavery. I mean, they're working jobs for like doing menial labor for two dollars, less than two dollars an hour, which is slavery. Not so to mention anti-blackness in the U.S. is is just it's 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 explicit. Um, I mean, literally two years ago, Joe Biden explicitly said, uh, "Poor kids are just as smart as white kids." And, you know, little things like that that seem like they're not really saying something serious. But like, I mean, we also have to factor in how long dispossession of of black farmers has been going on and um, I mean, the ongoing genocide against black communities. The yeah. civil rights movement was only, you know, uh, back in the '60s. Like that was not that long ago. So I would say that it. I don't. I don't think it ever. I don't think we've reached a point where we can say that we're not still part of the civil rights movement. Agreed. Um, I, I would agree, but like the historical period is what I'm referring to. Yeah, I, I mean, like I would say that we're even in the second or third wave of of what of this movement because it started off of course like i would say the first wave i'm not i'm not trying to like right now write a fucking paper on this but like you know slaves were freed and then it took almost 100 years for them to then get rights um basic fucking human rights which still pisses me off to this day and then now most still don't even actually have exactly and we're still right now trying to figure out okay what do we do with our fucking justice system because it's obviously like exists Place black people back into slavery states the medical system as well yes we did an episode on medical apartheid a couple weeks ago um actually um it was very interesting so to get back to the original point which don't get me wrong those are all great things to talk about but let's get back to the ecological terrorism that is going on now so there are a handful things that i have listed out here that um yeah so there are a handful of things that i have off the top of my head here listed out um, and Jesse, if you could, you know, add your own and expand on them. So, yeah. Um, so for one, um, there, the Israeli settlers have often uprooted Palestinian olive trees and replanted them in their own settlements and cities. And that obviously sounds like a pretty bad thing for the, for the native people. Um, there is a quote that I have from Mahmoud Darwish, where he says, if the olive trees knew the hands that planted them, their oil would become tears. Um, I think that's pretty powerful. Um, so as we've seen going on recently in, in the neighborhood of Silwan or the Al-Bustan neighborhood of the city of Silwan outside of Jerusalem, uh, they have, they, um, the Israeli settlers have been straight up demolishing Palestinian homes and uh, businesses. And this is not obviously the first time they've done this. They've done doing this, you know, to many, um, they, they burned houses down too. And so A, obviously, that you know requires a lot of resource intensive you know uh, efforts and all the resources it takes to you know create the new houses or whatever they're putting on. Um, they also have been known to burn agricultural fields of Palestinian lands. And one of the biggest things that is really angering, honestly, is how uh, Israel has full control over the water supply of the entire West Bank. So. I want everyone to like try and imagine if you had like a foreign entity that was controlling your water supply, they could just cut it off or, you know, limit you at any time. So those are just a few examples. And so Jesse, if you want to either expand on those or add your own examples, um, that would be awesome. Yeah, just to bring in some, some figures to kind of really help people visualize this. One fact that shocked me when I first learned it is that about 95% of agriculture in Palestine depends on rain because of all the Israeli restrictions on water. I mean, 90, like 95%, that's huge <laughs> because of how much, like it's, it's honestly, it, I mean, think about that. Imagine if you really have to depend on rain for 95% of your, of your crops. 
to be able to take care of your land. And Imagine then, if you had to depend on rain in a desert, ninety-five <laughs> percent of your crops. Exactly, and then for the olive trees, um, I know it's like over five hundred thousand olive trees have been uprooted since two thousand one, and so it's just yeah, over five hundred thousand, and I believe it's like over a million since nineteen um, forty, if I'm not mistaken, and just like the, the volume of it. That's what really gets me. Like once you really get into how many it is, that's when it's like ridiculous. Or if we think about the last month in Palestine, 290 water sources were destroyed. 290, it impacted water to over 800,000 people. And so it's things like that where it's, I, like I just I whenever I just like stop I, I, I don't know I don't sorry I like lost my train of thought because it really is just so overwhelmingly violent and when you factor in how like the olive trees you know they're not just olive trees they're so much more than that they're a part of national identity they have cosmological and spiritual significance it's really similar to the systematic killing of sled dogs and ravens in Canada when that colonial project was going on, well, it continues to go on, obviously, but when that colonial project was, you know, in the early stages, and it's just, it's never just trees, it's always this deeper thing. So when they're destroying these, this vegetation, they're also, I mean, they're, it's like spiritual genocide in a way as well, you're destroying, you know, who people are, it's, it's so layered. I was going to say, like you saw, you mentioned uh, the killing of sled dogs. Uh, we also have talked about this before, but also the genocide of Buffalo in the United States is a really good example that kind of shows you like we killed almost every single Buffalo that exists in the United States. And so that's a good kind of uh, also parallel um, to where we are. And then there's this other layer too, just quickly. Um, I think the part about it that that kind of just makes me the most sick is when people that people who support Israel's actions when they do this who claim to also be indigenous to the land um where they kind of bring up this you know they themselves have this deep spiritual intergenerational relationship to the land but um Oh, sure, yeah, but let's poison it and completely destroy it and make sure that future generations who live on this land can't, you know, it's, 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 it's so sickening. Like, it's so, it's so sickening. <laughs> I think the weirdest part about the indigenous argument for Zionism is that, sure, yes, Jewish people did live on the land many years ago, but how can that justify, you know, these catastrophic actions that they're bringing upon people? Like, you know, is it really your, like, is it really your land if you have to burn it down to then rebuild it? Um, you know, I think there was a quote from some speech somewhere that I heard that, you know, where he said, yes, you know, Jewish people do have, you know, uh, some right to, to the land of Palestine, but no more than the Christians or the Muslims um, because of, you know, that, you know, the, the, the valuable history there, but it's just, um, I'm losing my train of thought, but yes, you know, just because we have some indigenous, you know, history to it doesn't mean we should do bad things to people that were also indigenous to it. Exactly. And then doing that while also, you know, marketing yourself as this like, uh, progressive uh, modern nation who is so ahead of the rest of the world because of how how vegan and animal friendly we are um, because we you know we we care so much about all sentient beings and this is our our meanwhile what's going on you know a few feet away it's yeah well that leads into a great point about the vegan washing of israel um so there is a whole other podcast episode by uh, the vegan vanguard that I will link to in the sources, but it's important to touch upon it because we are a vegan podcast ourselves. Um, and I'd like to read a quote from, let's see who is this by, uh, I'd like to read a quote from Ahmad Safi, the executive director of the Palestinian Animal League, where he says, would my experience or that of my friends, family, fellow countrymen and women be different if the boot that kicked me was vegan? or the hat on the sniper's head who took my uncle's life was made from polyester, not wool. What do you think about that? 
Oof. Uh, I mean, the first thing that came to mind, and maybe this is silly, but I'm still really frustrated about how hard uh, during campaigning they were about Kamala Harris being a woman of color and how her being a woman of color was supposed to, you know, be this kind of proof that as long as she's in office, then communities of color are going to be, you know, so much better off. And it's, I mean, it's no, it's, it's literally just optics where it's like, are you causing harm and damage and committing violent acts against people or are you not? And it really comes down to that. And if you are, shut up. I mean, I don't even know like how else to put it because it really is just that. Like, are you committing acts of violence or not? And if you are, then just save the rest of the stuff. I mean, yeah, obviously people are going to swallow that up, eat it up. And some people are going to, the Mm -hmm. thing that's most important is what's actually happening. Like what are the actual material conditions the lived experiences of the actual people that are supposed to be, you know, benefiting from these so-called changes that are happening higher up. Um, And yeah. And and so another thing um, is that when it comes to to the vegan washing, um, in terms of other uh, recent modern news. Um, so Israel recently got a lot of praise for the recent ban of, or almost ban of fur, um, with the exception of some religious usings. And so when PETA posted about it on Twitter, everyone was angry, reasonably so. They're like, oh, you know, oh, Israel banned fur. When are you going to ban the killing of Palestinian children? And, you know, those are just the typical um, complaints because you know, it's just covering up for the other bad actions. But notably, PETA was, to my knowledge, silent when uh, Israeli bombings destroyed a zoo in northern Gaza. I mean, sure, we don't, we as vegans don't support zoos, but they just killed lots of animals, you know, in what was claimed to be crossfire by mainstream media. And so that's like the two-sided things. It really shows, you know, where their interests lie. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're not just talking about the bombing of of just animals. We're talking about the bombing of endangered and indigenous animals that were being protected. Like, even though it's a zoo and sure they were in a bad, probably in a bad situation, that's still not good. Yeah. They destroyed conservation efforts. So what's, what are you actually trying to, what are you trying to do here? Like, um, I actually have a question for you as somebody who, um, studies waste actually um so this is an example of how israel greenwashes and it's in the same article i know we've been referring to it a lot but every one of our listeners should read it um it was talking about israel's uh wastewater recycling program um that essentially like they take all their waste and they are, are supposed to be able to um make an effluent recycling like basically re- recycle all of their wastewater back into uh sorry consumpt for consumption um but there have been studies that says that the irrigation water is an environmental and health hazard, that it causes diseases such as cholera and other, um, you know, waterborne diseases that are caused from wastewater. And so my question for you is, is like, is this the only example of something like that that you've seen? Um, and do you think that it's actually, I mean, do you think that there, this is greenwashing in, in a way? Sorry if that was a bad worded question. No, it was a finely <laughs> worded question. Um, I'll come back to whether or not I think it's greenwashing um, because the first thing I do want to mention is that, I mean, New York City is a perfect example. Every year, billions of untreated raw sewage enter waterways. And uh, it's not like, it's, it's not an isolated incident. Um, polluted water sources is just such a common thing. There's lax regulations and it's just so hard to contain in many cases. And if we're talking about Palestine and like particularly, oh, there, it, there's just so many layers to it because I mean, one, you have just the ongoing fact that about 90% of sewage in, in Palestine is untreated. And then the fact that, I mean, a lot of the facilities are constantly being damaged or just beyond repair. They don't have the resources to, to, to repair them. And so, what sucks is that when you actually have facilities that are able to manage the water and treat it, they're great systems, you know, and you can reuse it to either irrigate crops or whatever. But when there are just so many 
aspects of the waste management systems that are just in a constant state of disrepair and damage. It's, I mean, there's not, there's just not much you can do. I mean, there's already a water shortage, a water crisis, really. It's, yeah, I mean, I hope I just answered your question. I mean, here's a figure to help people kind of understand like why this effluent water recycling program, one, doesn't work, and two, is is harmful to the environment, even though it's advertised as being this green, amazing thing, is that 46% of their sludge byproduct is dumped directly into the sea, Um, which is, you know, there are people who live directly on the water who are consuming the fish that swim in that sea that are, you know what I'm saying, that is polluted with um, actual shit. So if that gives you guys any idea of what's going on, it's similar to what's happening in, in New York City where raw byproducts of shit are just being dumped into the water sources. Exactly. And then it's not just, it's not just shit. And depending on the area, any other types of pollutants can be in there. And this can be anywhere from, I mean, medical supplies, needles, blood, other types of animal feces. Um, there's so many things that once they all get together oh, and then don't even factor in like uh, explosives and chemicals of war and herbicides and other chemicals that all kind of mix together in this, yeah. So still on the topic of water, I'd like to highlight a statistic that should be pretty staggering. Um, this was highlighted from a campaign, from a, a report from Amnesty International, which has reported on Israeli's actions uh, fairly often. So they, they report, the resulting disparity in access to water between Israelis and Palestinians is truly staggering. Water consumption by the Israelis is at least four times that of Palestinians living in the occupied Palestinian territories. Palestinians consume on average 73 liters a day, 73 liters of water a day per person, which is well below the World Health Organization's recommended daily minimum of 100 liters per capita. In many herding communities of the West Bank, the water consumption for thousands of Palestinians is as low as 20 liters per person per day, according to the UN Office for Coordination and Humanitarian Affairs. But by contrast, the Israeli consumes approximately 300 liters of water per day based off of their, um, their actions, their consumptions, and what their limitations are, which are probably not very limited, you know, given uh, their privileges and their access. Um, And there's another report that was uh, created by um, EWASH, which is the UN Emergency Water Sanitation and Hygiene Group. Um, And it's a joint between them and Al-Haq. And essentially they have found that um, Israel for a long period of time, since 2000 and I think it says 2011 until 2019 is when the report came out. In that time period, they found that they actually are committing things that are illegal under international law um, for the purposes of of producing water, like providing water to Palestine. Um, The type, like the water is below um, consumption ratings and all of those kinds of things. So even though they're consuming less water, they're also consuming worse water than most places in the world. Yeah, and to kind of add insult to injury, um, sometimes this is, you know, kind of painted as an issue of climate change, where let's say, you know, there's droughts, there's floods, there's all of these, you know, things beyond our control that are going on. So what we're really dealing with is a climate injustice issue, when in reality, it's just a lack of uh, acknowledgement of Palestinians' rights to water. And it's really easy to kind of hide behind, oh, there's all these other things going on in natural bioregional systems and such, when in reality, it's stuff like that, where they'll literally make sure that, um, certain industries are placed in occupied areas that are resulting in water being shifted away from Palestinians and to, I mean, often tourist areas, for instance. Um, but yeah, so that's just another problem too, where it's kind of easy for them to get away with not doing certain things because they can just chalk it up to, well, this is just the climate issue that we're dealing with when it's really just another issue of um, manufactured scarcity. Since the second Antifada, they have destroyed, uh, the Israeli army has destroyed 15 wells in the West Bank since September 2000, eliminating the largest water source for many Palestinian Palestinian villages and towns. Um, 
there is no water piped for 215,000 Palestinians in 150 West Bank villages. So that's 26% of the West Bank households. Um, they have put a ban on drilling wells um, since October 2002. Um, they have separated them from water sources um, since 2002 as well. Um, they, it's called a separation wall or an apartheid wall that essentially has electric fences, trenches, and security patrols um, that causes the water to no longer, like basically they lost access to 30 underground wells um, through those build, the building of those walls. Um, they've had an increase in waterborne diseases. Um, they have found infection rates from water-related diseases as high as 64% in certain communities in the West Bank. Um, over a quarter of rural households have a member suffering from diarrhea. Over half of these households had not had ad ad adequate bathing water for over two weeks. Um, they've also been polluting water sources um, in the, from Israeli settlements in the West Bank and Gaza um, that dump manure, untreated sewage, and wastewater into the valleys, polluting Palestinian water sources and agricultural land. Um, we're talking about the amount of waste that is produced by 1 million, 1.8 million Palestinians is produced by 300,000 settlers in, Pal in Israel. So if we're seeing like, that's like insane numbers. Um, there's also high levels of industrial zones, at least 200 industries and seven industrial zones in the West Bank are untreated industrial effluents and wastewater into Palestinian streams and agricultural land. And in just in 2001 alone, Israel discharged 3.5 million cubic meters of untreated wastewater into the Gaza Strip. So, also, I want to add um, with so many damaged roads and vehicles and difficulty getting between checkpoints, any donations of trucked water aren't even getting in there. So, there are some, there, I mean, there have been millions of dollars being put into, you know, sending in clean water on trucks to go bring them into communities. And they aren't even always making it there, just to add even more to the equation. Yeah. So, it's saying that it says that. From anywhere between 30 and 50% of Palestinians um, only consume water from trucked water supplies. And that's for bathing, drinking, cooking, whatever they need water for. And the prices have skyrocketed in the past um, couple years. So that's insane. All of this is insane and shouldn't be happening, especially not in 2021. One thing that I forgot to mention that I think is important to talk about is what is now known as the Jewish National Fund, where um, I don't know if this was your experience, but where, you know, um, they would bring around, um, you know, donation boxes at shul or synagogue and it'd say, oh, plant a tree in Israel. And, you know, I, I've learned a little bit recently about how, you know, that's not as feel good as it really is. Uh, how much do you know about that and um, the story behind it? That particular thing, not so much, but like urban tree ecology, I know a bit about, or forest ecology generally. And I feel like so often people, I'm actually writing a paper about this right now, but often trees are just seen as this, you know, they're providing canopy, they're providing shade, they're sequestering carbon, trees are doing all of these things to benefit communities. Um, but all of the things that actually go into taking care of trees and the, like, I mean, trees themselves are their own unique ecosystems that are made up of billions of different creatures and that are part of countless different ecosystems that are working together in the region. And so I feel like there's this kind of thing where it's just, oh, okay, we're just gonna plop a tree here and this is gonna do all this incredible stuff when in reality, there isn't as much attention paid to, you know, who's going to be there to care for these trees? Is there money and infrastructure in place to make sure that everything required of making sure that the surrounding ecosystems are, aren't doing damage or aren't harming each other or humans aren't perpetuating harm um, against these ecosystems is, is going on. So I'm guessing something like that is, is also relevant to what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, part of it is, Part of it is that what is now known as what I was referring to as the JNF used to be known as the Jewish Colonization Association back before um, it was declared the Jewish state. And so a lot of it also, the money doesn't go just to trees. 
um, a lot of the money goes to the, the dispossession of Palestinian land uh, and just settlements and, and has gone to just the overall colonization. And so like, it sounds good when you're telling people, hey, this is going to a tree, but it's not really just a tree is what I think we need to understand. Um, they talked about, or they, as in this writer, talked about the same thing that I was referring to, how you know the guise of planting a tree uh, in, in Palestine was meant to, you know, fool people into, you know, doing what they thought was right and such. And I'd like to read a quote from their article, which I will link in the sources page. <clears throat> the slogan, make the desert bloom, echoed in my head as I discovered that my grandfather's brooch was likely a small reward for a donation to the JNF towards planting Israeli trees on Palestinian land. It represents the Zionism enforced in 20th and 21st century Jewish culture that I've tried to distance myself from. And uh, another thing they said here, um, no, I, I think that was the, the best quote that I could find. Um, and yeah, so like that, that, uh, that slogan, make the desert bloom is like really chilling, isn't it? It's really chilling, especially when you factor in how like, yes, it is, you know, oh, there's a lot of desert land there, but I mean, for centuries, Palestinians have, cultivated incredible incredible lands and so it's just there's also this added kind of mythification of what's going on where it's like yes this is as i said this is desert lands but we can't erase the fact that there has been some incredible agricultural farming stuff going on for such a long time and so to keep that out of those narratives is just awful and it goes back to what i was mentioning earlier about how it's like oh, well, they can't even do this. We got to come in and save them. And it's like, uh, not, not really. On the same topic of that as well, another thing they talk about is, um, so there's a national park in Israel called Canada Park, which was built over three Palestinian villages and expands illegally onto parts of the West Bank. And it was created by the JNF and paid for by $15 million in charitable donation from Canadian Jews. The park, like much like Canadian national parks, offers hiking trails through pine forests, picnic areas, lookouts, and archaeological sites that, you know, probably seem all happy-go-lucky and such. Um, but the archaeological sites, of course, only present evidence of Roman, Jewish, and Christian civilizations with no mention of Islamic history despite its presence in the area. And I was going to say, you were talking earlier about the land and deforestation department of the JNF. Um, and in 1940, they literally said their goal outright, and I'm going to read it. It's insane. We shall not achieve our goal of being an independent people with the Arabs in the small country. The only solution is Palestine, at least Western Palestine, west of the Jordan River, without Arabs. And there is no other way but to transfer the Arabs from here to the neighboring countries to transfer all of them. Not one village, but not one tribe should be left. And this was a quote from Joseph White's who was the director of the Land and Afforestation Department of Israel's JNF in 1940. So we're talking about, you know, the, one of the people who started this idea of, of making the desert bloom, right, specifically said outright that they needed to decimate and commit genocide against the Palestinian people. The first thing I immediately thought was just, I think it's really important to not just like shed light on these, these things, but to really drive home the point that this is genocide in action. Cause I feel like it's one critique that I really don't like of, you know, a lot of the articles and essays and such about what's going on in Palestine where people are like, you obviously don't know what genocide is. If this is what you're referring to as genocide. And, um, Sorry, I'm I'm honestly just like sitting with with the, with everything that was just said, and I'm just. Can you provide a definition of genocide as somebody who studies genocide studies, so that people understand why this is genocide? Sure. Um, so I mean, just my, my the way I would describe it is just ongoing, systematic purposeful destruction of the lives, livelihoods, histories, cultures, and 
the things that make cultures what they are, um, just the destruction of those. And specifically with intent to erase a certain group of people from existence. Um, but that said, I am going to pull up an official definition because it says, you know, what I say, but in more, you know, kind of strict terms. And I know one thing a lot of people like to say is, well, that's not that you know the official definition, but just, just to read the official definition. So it's any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethical, ethnical, racial, or religious group from killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. And I don't know about you, but um, all of these things, we could check that off the list. And um, one just to bring up, I know in April and May, there were about 1,400 pregnant people who were struggling to find a safe place to deliver because of, because of you know, airstrikes, airstrikes, bombings, et cetera. And so it's something like that where you're literally putting measures in place to prevent people from giving birth. And it's just, I'm, to I look at what's good, yeah. I assume you're referring to people in Gaza, right? Yes. And, and so reminder for those who don't uh, know already, Gaza is, I believe, uh, one of, if not the most densely populated place on the planet. And so obviously there are going to be a lot of people giving birth. Uh, and so, you know, if they always have to be on threat of bombs and shellings, um, yeah. I don't think you can deny that it is genocide. Um, because we are seeing, when you said restrictions on, on you know, access to resources, we have that, check that box, right? We're talking about access to birth, to safe places to have birth, you checked that box. We're talking about the deliberate killing of those people to take over their lands, check that box. I mean, we've already talked about that, you know, extensively throughout here, destroying of natural resources, you know, all of these things are happening. And the only reason why people are scared to call it genocide, people are scared to call it apartheid is because those terms mean that we have to do something. Exactly. And I feel like another thing that some people will say is, well, it's, we're not actually targeting, you know, a specific group of people. Meanwhile, you literally have, I don't even want to repeat the chants that people will say or the things that you can read on the graffiti. Like I don't, I, I refuse to say it. And um, I just, I don't, I mean, I was going to say, I don't get how people, but like, I, I, like, it's, it's so disgusting. Like it, it is without a doubt genocide. And I just, it's it's heartbreaking and then it's even it's disappointing when I can when I have conversations with people who have you know really nuanced understandings of genocide in other places you know they can give you a full history rundown detailed explanation for why something is genocide somewhere else but as soon as you bring up Palestine all of a sudden it's oh wait 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 now you're taking it too far and it's yeah one thing that befuddles me about, you know, people's uh, understanding of the history is that on one hand, you have people who deny the Nakba, uh, the catastrophe, what it translates to, where, you know, 750,000 Palestinians were expelled between 1947 and 1948. On one hand, you have people that deny that. On the other hand, I heard people saying at that uh, flag march day, um, the second Nakba is coming. So like, one or pick one or the other, like, uh, you know, just to kind of back it up that, that, you know, this is genocide and has been seen as genocide by this, by a lot of scholars across the, across the world, the center for constitutional rights, uh, submitted a paper, released a paper, um, called the genocide of the Palestinian people in international law and human rights perspective, which I think is actually where you got, or at least has the same definition that you read Jesse, um, from it. Um, and in the conclusion they wrote, 
Prominent human rights advocates and scholars have argued that the killings of Palestinians and their forceful expulsion from Mandate Palestine in 1948, the Israeli occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, and the violence and discrimination directed at Palestinians by the Israeli government have violated a number of human rights protections contained in international human rights law, genocide being among them. So it is pretty much accepted, at least by a certain, like a large amount of scholars right? That this is genocide, that this is a breach of international law, and it's something that we should definitely intervene in. Um, and, and the thing is, kind of a, oh, sorry. we're funding it. Go on. All I was going to say is that you brought up an important point, too, because, like, we may, so you made me think that there are cases, too, where, like, if we bring it back to the United States, where there have been periods of time where scholars and city officials and people in government would not say that something was um, either genocide or violence or something. They would figure out ways to make the official statement that what is happening here is not violent, it is not bad, it is not something we can change. So I'd argue that even if there are official statements that are, you know, backing up the idea that what's happening is not genocide that too is just another example of how genocidal practices are able to continue because they'll have the full backing of powerful nations and powerful people that can ensure that these things go on and when you can make these official statements that the majority of the world is just going to eat up and believe and use that as a thing to say, you know, well, actually you shouldn't say that because according to so-and-so organization, this isn't what's happening. And so I feel like it brings up this whole other conversation too of, you know, there are going to be people in authority positions who are going to do all that they can to make people think that what's happening is not genocide, which is just a whole other layer of the violence. Yeah. So an example of, of, of a genocide that, right, that has been in the public, the public has admitted that it is a genocide, but we haven't done anything about it is the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar, right? We've seen the fact that this genocide is happening. It's been accepted that this genocide is happening since 2016. It has been accepted by the global community. that There's a genocide occurring in Myanmar. However, it's still happening and the international community has not actually intervened to make it stop. And so the question is, is how long is it going to take after we admit that what is happening in Palestine is genocide before we actually intervene and stop the occupation of Palestine? I think that's a great way to wrap things up. And uh, I think the last question that I would have uh, for you, Jesse, is sort of like a call to action for our listeners. And so how would you... Uh, you know, what would you say is probably the best thing for someone to do if there's anything we can do uh, outside of, you know, continuing to pressure our elected officials to do something about this um, outside of just reading more resources that we're going to provide? Uh, Yeah. So what do you think would be the best call to action for our listeners? So, I mean, the immediate thing I was going to say was, you know, stay informed and I feel like that's one of those things that gets kind of thrown around where it's like read up but I mean seek out sources that aren't just in popular media and the main thing is listen to Palestinians I mean find their blogs find their social media accounts while they exist um see what organizations you know like uh, PAL that you brought up and just related organizations, um, which I'm sure will be provided in the sources, um, which I'll, of course, I have more things to add as well, but listen to Palestinian voices. And I mean, and this one is just one I just keep coming back to where it's just be honest with yourself about what's going on whether you're hopping on Twitter to share your opinions about it or not, whatever, at the very least, you need to be honest with yourself about what's going on. You have to like, because before any changes can happen, you know, there has to be a collective effort of people that have really just, you know, come together to be like, look, regardless of what's going to be said about me or about this movement, um, we, cannot deny that what is happening 
is not only a crime against humanity, but this is something that is putting all beings on the planet at risk. And so it's, yeah, I mean, it, I truly think it just starts with being honest with ourselves and admitting that this is, is horrific and should not happen. And having, and I hate using the word, whatever, but like having the courage to bring that honesty to our friends, family, et cetera, whomever. It's because we have to, like we literally have to, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jesse, for your perspective and uh, your help, help, uh, your help in getting us to unpack this uh, very important issue. Um, this has been Behind the Tofu, and this is episode two of our series on Palestine. Thank you.